So today's talk is going to be about entering the path of practice or giving and receiving. I want to start by talking a little bit about the current class on entering the path of practice. There have been two offerings already on entering the path of practice or EPP for short. The first one was on the Buddha, the awakened one. The second was on Dharma, the teachings. And the current one is on Sangha, on the community of spiritual practitioners. We've been exploring what is a Sangha and Reverend Royce Johnson gave a very informative talk a few weeks ago about Sangha. And he read a story about when Ananda asked the Buddha if the Sangha was half of the holy life, to which the Buddha replied, don't say that. The Sangha is actually the whole of the holy life. In our Entering the Path of Practice class, we've been sharing our understanding of the teachings. We speak and we listen. And Tim has <laughs> has provided some really wonderful sutras and chants for us to contemplate and dig deeper, deeper into. And I think we, as a group, are immensely grateful for his knowledge, how he expresses his wisdom in words, words that are very deliberately thought out and articulated. Thank you very much, Tim. And I'm honored to be part of this class. So the way to practice or how one enters the path of practice is very individual and unique to each one of us. Entering usually means you go from one place into another or one way of understanding into another way of understanding, or you may enter through a gateway, a gateway that was always there, but maybe was obscured. We all enter the path of practice for different reasons, maybe because we want to leave something behind and not be where we are at the moment, wanting things to be other than what they are. The Four Noble Troops are what some of us was the gateway into entering the path of practice. The Four Noble Truths for, for those who are new are, there is suffering, there is a cause to suffering, there is an end to suffering, and the end to suffering is the eight, eight Noble Eightfold Path. For some of us, meditation, zazen, or just sitting is what drew us in, trying to find that calm place. Zazen is an important part of our practice, and as Dogen writes, zazen is not learning to do concentration. It is the Dharma gate of great ease and joy. It is the undivided practice realization. And maybe at the beginning, Zazen is everything but ease and joy. It's rather a stream, a stream of uncontrollable cacophony of thoughts trying to dominate our life and sense of self. In the book, Path of Liveness, by Zen teacher Christian Dilo, he describes the four mental postures that form the core of how to hold the mind in Zazen meditation. He writes, the first is, don't move. As practitioners, we adopt this posture as an intention. We begin with the body. We enact don't move by inviting the body into stillness. Whenever there's an urge to move, we refrain from enacting it. We remain seated and unmoving. By inviting the body-mind into stillness, we are inviting attention into stillness. 
Thus, by forming the simple intention not to move the body, we learn to experientially distinguish stillness from activity and are inviting the transformation of attention into awareness. The second mental posture is don't scratch. <laughs> this literally means when you feel an itch during meditation, don't scratch it. <clears throat> Metaphorically, it means to refrain from reacting to any and all sensations that are bothersome. Don't scratch is an, an extension and refinement of don't move. While don't move distinguishes stillness from activity and generates a field of mind resting in awareness, don't scratch distinguishes sensation from the action and actively develops a mind of non-reactivity. The third mental posture is don't invite your thoughts to tea or non-thinking. Many people think Zazen meditation is about stopping one's thinking and resting in a calm mind. This is false. It is essential not to try to stop your thinking just the way you don't try to scratch your itches. If you try to stop your thinking, this confirms your sense of being bothered by your thinking. Instead, by not engaging the thoughts with further thoughts, not inviting them to tea or serving them tea, thoughts will stop on their own. They will arise and expire by themselves. The fourth mental posture is don't correct your mind or non-interference. The mental posture here is one of non-interference or radical allowance. Allow your experiencing to be exactly what it is at this time. Uncorrected mind combines the fruit of the previous three postures, stillness, non-reactivity, and non-thinking into a comprehensive mental posture of radical non-interference. A positive word of for non-interference is acceptance. This isn't a mind that is never disturbed. We're not trying to transcend our humanness. It is a mind that isn't disturbed by being disturbed. For some of us, Zazen may not feel like ease and joy, and this is usually because of our habitual tendencies to go where the mind goes. So we learn to look deeply at our habitual tendencies that we're trying to run away from. And gradually, we learn to sit with what arises, whatever that may be. We may ask ourselves, how can I use my practice to transform my habits? Habits govern our experience by, in myriad ways. To experience a real sense of liberation, we need to find a way to work with them. I'm not just talking about habits of reactivity or habits of resisting and grasping. Thich Nhat Hanh in his book, Understanding Your Mind, explains that there are two kinds of habit energies. A habit formed by an action. These actions can be out of body, speech, and mind. If we practice walking meditation for three weeks, it will become a habit. If we lash out in harsh words or actions, when anger arises, this will be our habit. The second kind of habit energy is the habit of, of grasping duality. We have the habit energy of perceiving phenomena in terms of opposites, thinking that the opposites exist outside the subject, that there's self and other. There are many forms of duality that we grasp onto. 
beauty and ugliness, right and wrong, success and failure. Habit energies are the basis of internal knots and latent tendencies. Dick Nathan continues to say, we all have what is called internal knots and latent tendencies. Internal knots are the blocks of sadness and pain that are tied up in our consciousness. Their nature is one of suffering. When someone says, or we see something that makes us angry or sad, this can create an internal knot. Internal knots are tied gradually. Addiction is an internal knot. The process of the formation of an internal knot happens slowly and unobserved. Internal knots can, be, can lie quietly in our consciousness for a long time, but eventually they will rise and order us around. With mindfulness, we can be aware of what's happening as it's happening. When we cultivate the habit of recognizing what is going on with us, we follow this by looking deeply into what we have recognized. Once we have observed it deeply, there will be some understanding, and this understanding will lead us to liberation or letting go. Latent tendencies are internal knots that have been partly transformed. We may even think that they are no longer there. It's like cutting down a tree but left the roots. The tree may appear to be gone, but latent roots remain underground. We cannot separate ourselves from latent tendencies. We may think that because we have an understanding of no self, that we have pulled up the roots of being caught in the idea of a self. We must be careful and recognize that latent tendency of attachment to self when it arises is one form, in one form or another. When these two kinds of habit energies are transformed, when the internal knots have been untied, the fruit of practice reveals itself. When we live in mindfulness, we see that the world is just our consciousness, individual and collective, and that self and other, birth and death, coming and going, existence and non-existence are only notions. After looking and studying and working with our habit energies, we may still ask, am I solely responsible for my current circumstances? In other words, how did I get here? Where am I now? Did I really get here all by myself? Can we really take full responsibility for our current state of being, whatever that may be? Not really. So many causes and conditions had to come together for this moment to be what it is. So you have to hug just for a little bit. <laughs> a few years ago, when I was at the Berkeley Zen Center, listening to a Dharma talk by Mel Weitzman, who was the guiding teacher there, he said something that shifted my perspective and understanding of reality. He said, we should not be asking why, but how. How do things come to be? When I was trying to figure myself out or trying to figure someone else else out, I would ask, why? Why did they do what they did? Instead of how did the causes and conditions affect what is here and now? Most of the times, I don't know myself why I do something. How can I expect to understand why someone else does something? They may not know. I might never fully know the why. Because asking the why implies intention. And sometimes we might not have a fully formed intention 
when we say or do something. It might be totally habitual. We also have a tendency to see things in the imaginary construction, things that we assume, things we have constructed, things that we have made up. We sometimes call them stories. Think about the stories that we tell ourselves, which may have no basis on what really is taking place. What helps us understand reality is to understand how the causes and conditions brought about the present moment. And then we can better understand the nature of interdependence. Rev Anderson writes, not only are things not what we think they are, they're free of what we think they are. The absence of what we think is what is happening. This is the way things actually are. He talks about the three natures of phenomena. The first is the imputational nature or our concepts of what is happening. The second is other dependent or dependent origination. And the third is the thoroughly established fulfilled nature. He sums them all up as the dream, the mystery, and the absence of the dreaming in the mystery. Think about that for a while. So how do we leave the world of imaginary construct and enter things as they really are, or otherwise spoken of as suchness? The way is through meditation on the nature of interdependence, the practice of Paratantra. Paratantra is the process of learning and training ourselves to look deeply into the nature of interdependence. When we see the interdependent self-nature of things, we're no longer caught in the notion of duality. Interdependence means that a thing can arise only in reliance on other things. We observe the way things are by looking deeply at impermanence, non-self, and inner being. The first key is impermanence, and it's used to open the door of reality concerning time. Non-self, the second key, it's used to open the door of reality concerning space. There are, they are spoken as different, but in truth they are one. Time and space are one. One cannot be without the other. The third key is the fulfilled nature, the reality of no birth, no death, no coming, no going, no one, no many, no existing, no not existing. Impermanence and non-self go together with the nature of inner being. Impermanence and non-self are ideas designed to help us go beyond the ideas of permanence and self. We've been conditioned to believe that our imaginary construction and our deluded beliefs of a fixed and permanent self are real. We need to use the two keys of impermanence and non-self to understand the interdependent co-arising nature of all things. For example, when we see a child or a person who's well-behaved, we may understand that source and reason for his good behavior in the ground that nurtured him, his community and his family. But it's even more important to see the interdependently co-arising nature of a child or person who is behaving cruelly. Just as with good behavior, the reasons for a person's cruelty can be found in his family, society, school, friends, and ancestors. 
If we don't see the interdependent co-arising of the person's character, we, we get angry or afraid and we blame him. We must do our best to understand his interdependent self-nature in order to understand him, accept him, love him, and help him transform. Cultivating this ability to see is the raw material in a bodhisattva that leads us to great compassion. When we have looked deeply and we get even a small taste of compassion, we're able to understand those who are cruel and irresponsible. When we look deeply into the nature of interdependence and see that the person harming us is also a victim or of his family, his society, his environment, understanding arises naturally. With this understanding, there's empathy and reconciliation. Understanding is the fruit of looking deeply and the cultivation of awareness on how things come to be. Understanding, love, and compassion are one. Sometimes we're faced with difficult experiences or emotions. For example, when someone says something that hurts you or you experience a setback in your life, try this practice. Close your eyes. Breathe mindfully, in and out, and visualize things as they might be in five years or in 100 years from now. After three breaths, when you open your eyes, you'll no longer feel the same. Learning to touch the whole and not get caught up in small situations, this helps us see things in true perspective and allows us not to live in imaginary construction, which can bring misery. We usually think that awakening has nothing to do with ignorance, but if there were no ignorance and confusion, there could be no awakening. Ignorance is the ground from which awakening is cultivated. We see that delusion and suchness are one, not two. Delusion and suchness have the same ground, the ground of our consciousness, our mind. The Buddha advises us not to run away from anything in order to run towards something else. In fact, Buddhism is the practice of aimlessness, of having no goal. Ignorance and awakening are interdependent. It starts with accepting what is here now, including our suffering, misconceptions, and stories. In accepting our suffering and delusion, we already bring ourselves some peace and joy. If we reject them, if we try to run away from them, we'll never succeed. There is no escaping the things we hate. We can only transform them into what we love. We accept what is in the present moment in order to have a deep perspective and capacity to transform our circumstances. In our daily life, there are many distractions in the world. Too often, we're carried around by the energy of people around us, by circumstances, by our own thoughts, anger, and we don't have the strength to go against these forces. The energy that enables us to stop is mindfulness. A good practice is to stop or pause and take a breath to bring us to the present moment where reality exists. One very important aspect of Buddhist philosophy is its emphasis on real action. Real action is dimensionally different from intellectual consideration or sense perception, because real action is always done only in the present moment, without any exceptions. 
On the other hand, the intellect can only consider things that have happened in the past in our sense perceptions, although they may be immediate, always lag a bit behind the actual events that trigger them. Perceptions come after the real action. The real action is without perception. It just is, or also called suchness. The practice of stopping brings concentration. Concentration makes us makes our mindfulness form stable. As our mindfulness practice grows, we can see clearly what is unfolding within us. We don't grasp at it. We don't push it away. We simply recognize it. When we're angry, mindfulness recognizes the anger. When we're confused, mindfulness recognizes the confusion. We don't judge it and say that it's bad. We simply observe every occurrence that is happening in our body and mind without praise, reprimand, or judgment. This is called mere recognition. Mere recognition does not take sides. One might say that our practice is simple, mindfulness in our daily life. Even though the practice is simple, it can be difficult to maintain by ourselves in isolation. But if we are part of a community, a sangha, where everyone is practicing in this way, it becomes simple and natural. Tignahan says, Sangha building is the most important work of the practice. We need to learn the art of forming a community that is happy and gives people a feeling of confidence. A practice center should be organized like family. If a practice center is not organized as a spiritual family where everyone feels like a valued member, the work of transformation is difficult. Many, many people come to the practice from difficult homes in a complex society. If the practice center is organized in such a way that everyone is an island without much contact, affection, or warmth for other members, and if, even if they were to practice for 10 or 20 years, there'll be no fruit. The Sangha is an environment where transformation and healing can take place, and each one contributes to that environment. In our Entering the Path of Practice class, at the beginning of each class, we say our intention. And a couple of weeks ago, I said my intention was to give and to receive, to give freely and receive with an open heart. After that class, I found myself diving a little deeper into what is giving and receiving. We usually give what we can give, and at times we might be holding back other things, things we want to keep. Sometimes we find it hard to give our truth, so we give what we think others want to hear. And sometimes some of us are reluctant at giving certain things freely. There may be expectations attached to the giving. Recently, I had to write myself a note, something that made sense as I was experiencing the weight of others' expectations. People cannot take what you do not have to give, or you cannot give what you do not have. It gave me some space to look at what I was feeling, to remind myself that I was not a failure if I could not give them what they wanted. A little bit of a drama queen there. Um, <laughs> You cannot give what you do not have at the moment. This made me question and try to understand what is given and what is taken, or what can only be given and received, not taken or grabbed or snatched. 
When you want someone to love you, you cannot take their love. It can only be given. When you want someone's kindness, it can only be given, not taken. When you want compassion, it can only be given and received, not taken. Love and compassion are not things that can be taken. They can only be given and received. I find that you have to be full with love to give it. You have to be full with compassion in order to give it. How do you fill yourself with love and compassion? You practice and create the right causes and conditions to cultivate love and, com and compassion. Is this easy to do? Not at all. It's actually very hard, especially if you have not had love and compassion given to you. So in the Sangha, we practice with giving and receiving one way is with our forms and rituals, like when we ring the bells or prepare the zendo for a dharma talk, we perform them for each other. We give and we receive. When we have classes, we give and we receive. How does one receive with an open heart? In order to receive, we have to open ourselves and allow others to take care of us, to love us and allow ourselves to feel we are worthy of it. <clears throat> Sometimes receiving may be difficult. There are some of us that find it difficult or uncomfortable to accept gifts or praise. Allow yourself to receive it with gratitude and that you are worthy of love and kindness. When we have our seishins, intense retreats, we all have different roles that we accept. Some of us are service, servers for the formal Oryoki meal and some of us receive the food. The Sangha community gives us the strength to be diligent with our practice, to awaken to the reality of our nature. The Zen Center Sangha community is where we can replenish our tank, so to speak, and we can go back out into the world and be able to give. Lastly, I'd like to read a poem. The Path. Entering the path, is there a beginning? Who knows? Is there an end? Just like the river flows. The path exists, always there. Maybe not seen, the path is well trodden. That is why it can be felt. You will be the marker for others. You may not think you are the path keeper, but you are, because you are the path. You see the path. Be it as it may, it cannot be otherwise. Others benefit from your doubt. Others benefit from your life. Be you. You are others. They are you. In conclusion, when we understand the interdependent nature of reality, we can come to understand how things come to be. Nothing has a separate existence. We go beyond concepts into the fulfilled nature of reality, the absence of dreaming, and the mystery. Thank you.